we're gonna we'll be going off. But I'm a, there's also going to just be a lot of me just like, I have a bone to pick with certain just decisions that they make. <laughs> As we all do. <laughs> Which is like, just why, why? Why must you do this? I mean, the first one, like the first movies just makes me laugh so much. Just because like certain costuming designs just... Oh, we, we will go movie by movie. We will go movie by movie, of course. Okay. Oh, there's so much. All right. <laughs> Hi, welcome to Let's Muse About with Krupa Malawade. I'm your host, Krupa Malawade. This is episode two, The Trouble with Twilight. Today, I have a guest with me, Miss Maggie Hall. We've known each other since freshman year at NYU when we met in a dorm room basement and I was drunk on vodka and apple juice. (laughs) We were playing Kokomo. (laughs) The perfect situation to meet a best friend. Exactly, and ever since then, we've been inseparable. And... If there's anyone who's going to give you a nice rant on the Twilight Saga, it would be me, who has been firmly in the trenches of the Twilight fandom since 2005, and who is one of the co-moderators for the Twilight subreddit, which means I have seen the best and the worst sides of this fandom. On top of that, she has a budding following on TikTok of Twilight fans. (laughs) We are deeply entrenched in that, too. I am surrounded on all sides by the Twilight Renaissance. (laughs) So, with the, you know, uh, release of Midnight Sun that has just come this August, we wanted to delve into some issues that we have with the Twilight film series. Now, personally, I'm not a fan of the books, particularly, but I can see the appeal for, in terms of, like, a a story of comfort for, for young girls... But personally, it was not something that I, you know, identified with very greatly. But I did read all the books, I did watch all the movies, and I'm extremely familiar with the story. But we wanted to talk about this week the difference between a female director and a male director within this franchise. Because if you are familiar with the Twilight films, uh, the first film was directed by Catherine Hardwick, and then the last four were directed by i forget his name it was like gary there was various men yeah various men directed the rest of the twilight series which is probably why so many people are disappointed in the last four movies of the series mm-hmm. <laughs> there is a, a distinct difference between the female and the male gaze which is what we are going to talk about on the podcast today but this particular series is important to maggie it is a series of comfort for her growing up and i'm going to let her Talk more about that right now. Yes. So, Twilight is extremely important to me. I consider it to be one of the foundations of my personality. Twilight is what got me through some of the hardest parts of my life. And as a neurodivergent person, it is the special interest that has been in my life the longest. It is a major source of comfort and a major source of inspiration for me. However, when I say that, I am talking about the books. The books are very important to me. The Twilight films are a source of combined confusion, rage, and exhaustion. (laughs) The only Twilight film I can honestly say I enjoy watching today in 2020 is Twilight, directed by Catherine Hardwick, although I do go hard for some of the flashback scenes in Eclipse. 
but I have very, very specific feelings about how the book series, written by Stephanie Meyer, which was written entirely in the female gaze, was then twisted to a male gaze general public audience by film studios once the first film was successful. Yeah, and that you can see that very clearly in what they leave out in a lot of the films, some of the more important plot points uh, that should have been included, and also the really, really painful triangle with Jacob, which is not something that is as prevalent in the books, but is very heightened in the movies. We are going to talk about that mm-hmm. because, oh boy, oh boy, that pisses me off. And we're definitely going to talk about the way that the Quileute tribe was represented in the films versus the books and how they were treated by the book publishers versus the film people. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so we're going to just jump right in. We're going to start with... Alright, let's just start with the first movie. Let's start with Twilight's self-titled album. When was this released? I am incredibly lucky in that I jumped in to this train before the first film came out. I first got into the books about six months before the film came out. There was buzz, everyone was freaking out about the fact that Robert Pattinson had been cast as Edward Cullen, but the movie had not yet come out. Which meant that the fandom was almost entirely girls under the age of 15. Those that weren't under the age of 15 were sort of women... Like, there was the whole Twilight Mom phenomena, and it was mostly women reclaiming a sense of their youth and that sense of first love. When the first film came out, Catherine Hardwick worked with Summit Entertainment, which was a very small indie studio at the time. They weren't expecting this to be this giant blockbuster film. She had a fairly small budget. She cast all of these indie actors who weren't super well-known. Robert Pattinson had a Harry Potter credit, but other than that, he'd done very, very little. Kristen Stewart was an indie darling. And they put together this film on a fairly small budget in the middle of Oregon. And then it exploded. And when it exploded, every single magnifying glass that Hollywood could put on a film was put on Twilight. Now, there's a lot to say for how stylized the first film is. The blue tint is iconic. And a lot to say for things she changed, but the one thing that Catherine did not change and that she always remained loyal to was to presenting the story through the female gaze. Now, if you're not familiar with the terms female gaze and male gaze, they are the concept that the male gaze, which is basically what everything you see that is not explicitly made for the female gaze defaults to, think 500 Days of Summer is a pretty strong example of the male gaze, It's films that are made to be consumed by heterosexual men, and it supports the way that they experience the world. It's sort of a representation for their experience. Yeah, and uh, another example that you can think of is Suicide Squad, the the movie the with Deadshot and and the Joker and all of that, compared to Harley Quinn's standalone movie Birds of Prey, which was actually directed and written by a woman. And the differences in those two movies, in the way it's stylized, in the way Harley Quinn is presented, first as a hypersexual kind of, a hypersexual woman wearing a shirt that says Daddy's Little Girl uh, in, in, you know, ratty clothing. But in Birds of Prey, she's dressed a little bit more modestly. She's dressed with more fun outfits. 
with all of these crazy colors, you know, she allows herself to be a little bit more vulnerable and a little bit more caring when it comes to a small child, as opposed to being entirely defined by her relationship to the Joker. Yep. In Birds of Prey, her character arc is about her personality. In Suicide Squad, her character arc is about what she does for the various men in the movie. And on top of that, in Suicide Squad, she's basically dressed in this same, you know, uh, relatively... Skimpy? Yeah, skimpy outfit. I don't like I don't like defining things as like skimpy or modest and stuff like that because you know women are allowed to dress however they want but Absolutely. For the yeah, for the sake of this podcast, this is how we're going to describe it, but yeah, and in Suicide Squad she's dressed for lack of a better term skimpy and in Birds of Prey you kind of see how her personality influences the wardrobe choices with her like really really flashy and and fun and and noisy jacket her colorful boots, the way she like ties her hair up, the way she's so playful as a, opposed to this basically the same outfit from like beginning to end in Suicide Squad. And then compare to how the general population of comic book fans, the majority of which I would say are men, are male, yeah. responded to Birds of Prey versus how they responded to Suicide Squad. Speaking of which, I did actually get to see Birds of Prey when it was, you know, in its first couple of weeks, I was able to get a ticket through my uh, movie theater job. If you, fun fact, if you work at an indie movie theater in New York, there is a reciprocity system uh, that a lot of them have. It really depends on which movie theater you work at because it doesn't work for every single movie theater. But for example, if you work at BAM, which is the Brooklyn Arts Museum, if you work at the cinemas there, you can actually request free tickets for yourself and for a guest in most cases from other theaters like IFC from Quad Cinema from Angelica if you're in New York City um so that's how that's how I got my ticket for Birds of Prey I was able to go to uh the Village Cinema Village East and I went with two queer men and one man who I would you know define as straight and while I didn't like the dialogue. I was very, very entranced by the story. I was entranced by the stylization. I, when it comes to action movies, I love fight choreography. It comes from years of, you know, doing martial arts. <laughs> but when we left, I just hear these three boys, like, roasting this movie and ripping it to shreds and saying, this is such a stupidly written movie. And I'm like, I agreed that the dialogue is not great. But for the character of Harley Quinn, who's supposed to be this playful, aggrandized, childlike character, and for the story itself, it works. I like the movie. I enjoyed it. I would watch it again. You know, I'd skip through a lot of the really crappy dialogue, but I liked how it was stylized. I liked how the story was told. I liked how the plot moved. But I, I felt like I couldn't enjoy it in the company of these three men. Absolutely. And there's a reason why when I watch Twilight, when I do return to the films, I don't think I've ever done it with a guy friend. It's always with my female friends or female presenting friends. But a big part of why I think Twilight got the backlash that it did, but also the fandom that it did, is because of exactly what you're identifying. It's a stylization that is geared toward a woman's eye rather than a man's eye. Edward Cullen is basically designed to be a sex symbol in the first movie. 
And I think it's very telling that a lot of the general public responded to that by calling him sort of weak and effeminate and various phrases along those lines. Because what they are expecting from a movie in which a male vampire is falling in love with a female human is for the female human to be the damsel in distress and for the male vampire to be the big brooding hero. We've seen this with Buffy the Vampire Slayer. We've seen this with countless Dracula adaptations. It's expected that the male vampire, as he is a supernatural creature and as he is a man, is the dominant force of the storyline. But that is not the case for Twilight in the books or in the movies. Bella's the one in control here. And that put a lot of people off their game. Yeah, I, I want to expand on this as well, because this is something you and I have discussed, you know, off the podcast. Mm-hmm. But I think something very important to note here is Bella has her greatest agency when she's talking to Edward. Mm-hmm. We talked about this over text, you know, as we were preparing for this podcast. But uh, you mentioned something that Bella's not comfortable being a human. And I recognize that. Bella, whenever she spends time with humans, she's not comfortable. She's not necessarily, like, she's somewhat comfortable with Jacob, but that's because this is, like, pre-Wolf Jacob. Uh, yeah. Yeah, th- th- this is pre-that situation, yeah. and Jacob. the only reason she's really comfortable with him is because she's known him, basically, since youth. Because they're, you know, their parents are best friends. But when she's at school with, like, Mike and Jessica, she's uncomfortable. She's ex- ex- exceedingly uncomfortable how you like in the rain, girl? Oh my god. <laughs> She's exceedingly uncomfortable with everyone except for, like, maybe Angela. And even then, she doesn't really get comfortable with Angela until the movies, like, progress. And I think a big part of the reason why she is more comfortable with Angela is Angela doesn't ask questions. Angela just lets Bella be. The rest of the humans in her life want something from her. Jessica wants social standing, Mike wants to date her. Angela just wants to hang out with her in the back of a van and just be nice. The thing that I wanted to expand on in terms of Bella's agency is for pretty much the first book and half of the second book, Edward is running in the opposite direction. And it's not because he doesn't like her, which you'll, you know, no. you realize in Midnight Sun, you also know this from the first book. He does like her. He does want to be with her, but he doesn't want to have her involved in this, you know, self-deprecating spiral that he's a part of. He doesn't want her involved in this world that he's been a part of for the last hundred years or so that he uh, un- unwillingly was made a part of, but <laughs> he's trapped in an Edwardian moral spiral. Exactly. Right? He doesn't want to be with her, not necessarily because he doesn't like her, but because he doesn't want her to get hurt. He doesn't want her to get involved. But she, knowing this, knowing who he is, and recognizing what he is, keeps saying, no, I want to be with you. I understand the risks. I understand what I'm getting into. I know what I'm getting into here. And I know I want to, you know, be immortal with you. And granted, at 17... I I don't know if I trust that, but suspension of disbelief. Yeah, it's, it's so a important teenage to remember, girl novel series. It is so <laughs> important to remember that Twilight is a fantasy series. People, I have spent the last fifteen years of my life dealing with people trying to apply human thought processes to the vampires of the Twilight Saga when they are not 
human. It's a they are supernatural, story. centuries it's... old creatures, and you have to get on their level to understand their characterization. In any fantasy novel, you have to think within the story. You can't really mm-hmm. apply real world. You you can somewhat apply real world real world influences, but when it comes to a fantasy story, you have to have suspension of disbelief. Absolutely. Because you are not going to be able to follow along with the story. You're not going to be able to keep up with the plot. The plot is the real meat of this story, not this, you know, fantasy hoo-ha. But mm-hmm. that's what you need to focus on. And what we're talking about is the plot. And, and you know, that thing that you said about, like, basically having to defend Twilight. Again, it's a... Stephanie Meyer wrote this in response to, like, My Chemical Romance's music. Yeah. She was... For, if you don't know this story, listeners... Twilight exists because Gerard Way of My Chemical Romance was inspired to start the band after 9-11. Twilight exists because Ronald Reagan sold arms in the Middle East, which triggered the Taliban, which triggered 9-11. And then we therefore have Fifty Shades of Grey because of Ronald Reagan. So Ronald Reagan caused Fifty Shades of Grey. It's a conspiracy. Anyways. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, like... It it's a it's a teenage girl fantasy. It's a it's a it's the wet dream of a thirteen year old girl. Basically, that's the point of this novel. Like at if least the first one. If you're not nitpicking the relationships of the Transformers movies, then why are you nitpicking Twilight? Because one is a male fantasy and one is a female fantasy. Exactly. Exactly. It's yeah. It's 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 you know the hot flash of a thirteen year old girl, but. When you are a 13-year-old girl reading that story, you identify with that. It's important mm-hmm. to you. It brings you comfort. That's what a lot of these fantasy stories do. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're applying, you know, realistic expectations of human relationships. And I think that's something, you know, let, let me just stress that in the podcast right now. Try not to let your human, you know, real-life relationships be too influenced with how people in stories deal with it. Because Absolutely. the fun thing about fiction is that real world, you know, forethought and, and common sense don't have to exist. Nope. There are a lot of things that happen in the Twilight Saga that if they happened in the real world would not be a great thing. But Twilight is a bunch of books. It is not reality. On top of that, like, if you... Hmm. If you dislike the Twilight movies, granted, every a lot of people dislike the Twilight movies because they were mishandled in a lot of ways. But very compare that to the Coen Brothers filmography. Compare oh, compare God. that to Fargo. Compare that to <laughs> Burn After Reading. Compare that to Frick it. Uh, you know the Big Lebowski. It's literally a group of people making stupid decisions. That get them hurt in the end. But you know what? That's okay. And if I have to hear another person in the year of 2020 say, still a better love story than Twilight, every single person who is still parroting that stuff is just telling me that they do not have the emotional intelligence to understand a difference between a story and reality. Yes, there are certain ideals of love and and relationships that we should have. Oh god, there's a spider. Oh no. (laughs) Podcast pause. Do you need to go kill it? It's a daddy long leg, so it's actually going to kill the other spiders in my room, but we're going to see what direction it goes. Okay. Oh my god, it's walking towards my desk. It's going to lay its eggs on my desk. Uh, please don't. 
The thing is, is if I try to kill it, I know it's just going to disappear and then I'm going to be even more anxious. Yeah, I see you. What about it? You better see me right there. Of course, as we're talking about vampires, a spider fucking shows up. Uh, where were we at? We were talking about love stories. Yes. <laughs> in terms of the love story in Twilight, I think it also is really important to note how it differs in the books versus the films. And yes, they're supernatural creatures. They move at a very different speed mentally than we do. But in order to engage with Twilight on pretty much any level, you have to accept the idea that love at first sight and true love and soulmates exist. Because the way that the vampires work in this mythos is that they are immovable. Once they have an emotional shift, they remain in that place for the rest of their lives. You can't really fall out of love as a Twilight vampire. Yeah, you see that example in the relationships between like Jasper and Alice and Emmett and Rosalie. You know, and you also see that in how enamored Edward is with Bella from the moment he basically like first sees her. And you know, maybe they played it out wrong in the first movie just a little bit with, you know, the way he smelled her strawberry shampoo. With the angel wings of the owl behind him as he looks like he's choking. Exactly. <laughs> While we're at it, uh, I have used strawberry shower gel and shampoo. It, don't, it does not smell get that good, okay? It smells like cough syrup sometimes. There, but I digress. I, I want to know, know, no, know what the metric is for, like... Garnier Fructis strawberry shampoo. If they just had like a sudden run on it after Twilight what came out, what if they out, had just like I a midnight sunline? <laughs> oh my god! I mean, I'm where I am sitting here in my bedroom. I have a bookshelf next to me that holds all of my various vampire stuff, and there are multiple candles there that smell like various scents from the saga. <laughs> the fan merch tie-ins. Okay, so fan-made merch for Twilight is incredible, and it understands what it is. What the hell were they selling us when the movies came out? <laughs> what the hell was that stuff? It's so bad. Fan-made merch is always better. Because they but know like, what you're looking <sighs> for. They know what you want, because they want it too. Oh my god, the spiders disappeared. <laughs> Fuck! <sighs> I'm gonna let you figure out how to edit around this. <laughs> Oh, I'm including it. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> okay, wait, wait, I'm sorry. I have to find the spider and I have to eliminate it. Okay. It's, now that it's disappeared, it's 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 rogue, so <laughs> I'll be right okay. back. Hold on. Water break. <laughs> Where are you, you son of a bitch? <laughs> While we have a moment here, while I'm recruiting my dad to kill a spider in my room, I'd like to take this moment to talk about something that's happening. Uh, recently, a 29-year-old black man named Jacob Blake was shot seven times in the back by the Kenosha Police Department in Wisconsin Sunday afternoon. That is uh, August 23rd. The officers responded to calls of a domestic incident. Uh, Jacob Blake was trying to de-escalate a situation between two women when police drew their guns on him he started walking away he turned his back and they shot him seven times 
Right now he's recovering in the hospital, but if he does not recover, if he does not survive, he will be survived by three sons who saw him get shot. I'd like to ask you now to take this moment to pause this podcast and sign a few petitions. There are many online that you can come across. Sign as many petitions as you can find that demand that the police officers in Kenosha are held accountable for what they did to Jacob Blake. I'd also like you to call the Kenosha City Attorney, Kenosha Mayor and City Administration, the Police Non-Emergency Line in Kenosha, and the Wisconsin Department of Justice to get justice for Jacob Blake. Black Lives Matter, now and always. Demand justice for Jacob Blake. It was big! Oh, first of all, I just want to say thank you to my sponsor, Vibe of Malawade. Thank you for paying my bills <laughs> and killing my spiders. Back to the podcast. We were talking about the first movie. We're going to go into the first yes. movie. Yes. First movie. Okay. So, Summit Entertainment did not think that this was going to be an extensively successful film. It was supposed to be a sort of niche indie film. Everyone thought that the vampire craze had ended after the end of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and that this was just going to be, might make a hundred million at most, be a fairly small release. In reality, Catherine Hardwick made a blockbuster that made 192.8 million, which was the highest release a live action film directed by a woman had ever had at that point. This was a huge, huge deal. And A big part of why it was so successful was Catherine Hardwick's vision. She was taking a fairly meaty book written in first person and creating this entire world. And make no mistake, that first Twilight movie was a world. When you put that movie on, even today, you're stepping into like a different universe. And it's not just because of the blue tint. She was very, very specific with the way that the dialogue worked, with the way the characters interacted. And yes, there are some changes from the book, in particular the way that Bella finds out that Edward is a vampire, but she's true to the heart of what Twilight was and is about. She understood the book and didn't try to fix the book. She didn't feel like she had to fix something that wasn't broken. Yeah, and the way she introduced a mythos in the first movie that basically set the stage for the last four, I think is also very important because if you have not read the Twilight novels at all, if you that if your first introduction into the Twilight series was the film, the very first movie is actually very, very true to the original story and introduces the mythos of the original story particularly well. In terms of how it explains where uh, Edward, you know, got turned into a vampire, the situation with his family, how they've, you know, made it thus far without necessarily being, you know, discovered, as well as, you know, Bella's whole story arc, like what influences her and like how she basically what motivates her character. Yes. And then after this film was very successful. Catherine obviously assumed she would be staying with the series, because it was Catherine who had actually convinced Summit Entertainment to make the movie in the first place. This was her baby. She had cast everyone, she had sort of organized this all together, and then very shortly after the movie became so successful, she was removed with the statement that she was being irrational. 
Now, there can be a whole other podcast on the way language can be gendered in how we deal with people, but I think that it is no mistake that Catherine Hardwick was considered irrational in her expectation that she would get to continue with the series once it was successful. Because frankly, the only reason they let her be the director is because they thought it wasn't going to be very successful. When it was, they immediately got rid of Catherine. Now, Catherine is not perfect, but Catherine had been there from as close to the start with the films as you could get. And that she was so, so quickly ousted by Summit Entertainment is tr- was truly just a calling card of what was to come with the films. We get to New Moon, which is the second film. Now, after the first film, the world pretty much imploded. This movie was everywhere. It was kicking off what became the Twilight craze, but New Moon is what cemented it. It went from being sort of a very, very popular indie, a la Napoleon Dynamite, to becoming a franchise, which people at the time compared to Harry Potter, because of course there's only one other thing young adults like. I think also around this time is when uh, the first Marvel movies also got released. So in terms of, as Twilight starts to become an action-packed series, on top of, you know, a romantic series, you see all these comparisons, not only to the, how the arc of Harry Potter is taking place, but also how, or finishing up, I should say, the way Harry Potter's finishing up. It is an action-packed series at, at this point. This is getting very close to the end of Harry Potter. And then you see the introduction of now the Marvel stories, which Iron Man was the very first one that they brought in terms of the modern MCU. That was 2008. I believe Twilight yes. was released, I think, the same year. It was, yes. Right. So these two basically battled for box office at the same time, and both were wildly successful. And they set the stage for the movies that came after, and the stories that came after. But one was aimed at teenage girls, and one was aimed at teenage boys. Mm -hmm. That's not to say that there aren't male Twilight fans or female Marvel fans, but this is what their marketing was aiming for. Which is also very true, considering the fact that there was not a standalone female-centered movie until Captain Marvel. And Captain Marvel, as we all know, was eaten alive by male comic book fans. Exactly. And I don't even want to think about, like, what the response to Black Widow, Black Widow standalone movie must have been, but... Oh, God, uh, yeah. The way Black Widow was mistreated in the entirety of the MCU rattles me. The way Scarlet Witch's entire arc became about her love rattles me. She's so strong. She can rip people apart, but she only does so when she's grieving because the men in her life have died. Huh. But back to Twilight. <laughs> okay. So we get to New Moon. Catherine Hardwick has been unceremoniously kicked out, and with it, the female gaze is removed. From this point on in the films, it is male gaze central. The movie goes from having, in Twilight, the most climactic scenes are centered on Bella to the climactic scenes are now centered on Edward. And this is when the series starts to become more of an action series than a fantasy romance series. New Moon was directed by a man named Chris Weitz. It has the same screenwriter, Melissa Rosenberg, at this point, who is 
the only woman who made it all the way through production. And a big part of why Melissa Rosenberg made it all the way through is because she immediately understood the need for this shift of gaze. She saw what had happened to her friend Catherine and basically acted accordingly to save her job. If you look at her drafts of the original screenplay for New Moon and then what it became the moment Chris Weitz came on, she went through and shifted it to male gaze immediately because she knew that's what people were now expecting. Because now that this movie was successful, it needed to be tailored to men was essentially the thinking. Yeah, and, you know, to further that, you know, you're talking about the production that goes into it. I'm talking about the story. Mm-hmm. Granted, New Moon was, like, the story itself was somewhat focused on Edward's grief, thinking that Bella was dead, but it was also Bella's grief in terms of losing this relationship that meant a lot to her because Edward was scared. But when you see it in the movie, you see Bella as this heartbroken, completely destroyed person, and even at 17 years old... I have a hard like granted in the books it's it's basically like four months passing by, you know, and mm-hmm. in, in if you read New Moon, they break up at some point in I think September of that year, and then it goes October, November, December, January, and then February is when the story picks up again. And yes. they showed this in the movies, basically her gazing out a window as the months were passing by, as the seasons were changing. Which I do have to say, that scene with possibility by Leaky Lee playing iconic it is, cinema it is iconic but it also i also didn't like it because it made me feel like this breakup was so all-encompassing for bella when that might not necessarily have been the case granted she like she loved him a lot she was trying to get over him she's trying to move on and she did for a very very small glimpse but then she realized that you know Edward didn't actually want to break up there. He wanted to be with her, but he was scared, and so that's when she went after him. But I actually bu- have to disagree. I have to disagree with you there, because and this is another thing that gets into the fantasy element. We're not dealing with a situation where it's a seventeen-year-old who's broken up with her boyfriend of eight months. We're dealing with a situation where Bella is not only losing the love of her life, essentially in Edward, she's losing herself. Because at this point in the series, she has gotten so attached to the idea that she will become a vampire and she will leave behind this human life and move forward into vampirism. And when he leaves her, he not only removes himself from her, he removes that entire world. And so in the books, she essentially enters a catatonic-like state where she goes through her, like, daily needs, and all of that. We will get into Charlie later. But then, doesn't really wake up until Jacob Black comes along. Now, Jacob Black, in the first book and first movie, might as well be a different character than who he is for the rest of the series. And that is both because he becomes a werewolf and also because of how the male directors decided to position him in Bella's life. The whole Team Edward and Team Jacob thing, it was brilliant marketing by the movie people. But it was entirely invented by the film directors. Yes, it wasn't... When you're reading the books, there is never any question that she is meant to be with Edward. 
Jacob just made it hard. Right. While Jacob is, you know, you could consider him maybe a smidgen of a of a competent contender for Bella's heart, but a lot of that whole team Jacob, that Jacob and Bella relationship is Jacob's insistence that he and Bella are meant to be together. Yes. He's made the decision for her, not let her decide. On top of that, I think we also need to know that in the books, Jacob is younger than Bella. He's about a year and a half, yeah. Yeah. Bella's 17, or, you know, coming on 18 by the time we hit Eclipse and, and Breaking Dawn. And Jacob is basically this kid who, well, not necessarily a kid, but he's this younger, basically this younger brother to her at first. And he falls in love with her and makes this entire worldview about her when... For her, it's never even been a question. It's Edward, 100%, all the way from the moment she first saw him. The fact that there are multiple scenes in the books and in the movies where she is essentially having to placate Jacob's feelings by reopening her own trauma is very, very upsetting. Yeah, and on top of that, any time you see any kind of relation between Jacob and Bella. It's always Jacob insisting and insisting and Bella just saying, well, you won't leave me alone for it, so might as well do whatever I have to do to get you to, like, stop and leave me alone for a moment. Mm -hmm. And then, also, (laughs) Edward's whole climax in New Moon is because Jacob misspoke. Yep. (laughs) Because he didn't explain any further, and, and... I don't know if Edward would have asked any further questions. Once again, suspension suspension of disbelief. Sometimes characters make stupid decisions or they don't actually let common sense make their way into their decisions. But Jacob basically inserts himself into Bella's life as she's mourning this loss of her worldview, as she's mourning this relationship that she cares so much about, as you've said. He inserts himself into his life, into her life, and then insists on replacing Edward when that is not something that she wants. And then, you know, we'll we'll talk about Eclipse as we get to that film, but... And one thing I do want to talk about with the Jacob situation, though, as a book person, this love triangle wasn't supposed to exist. The only reason the love triangle exists is because after the first Twilight book was released in 2005, it caught on and people were reading. And so her publishers went to Stephanie Meyer... And said, we want more books. And she said, well, what I have planned here, it's a two-book series. It's Twilight and Forever Dawn. We're going from them in high school to then they get married and she becomes a vampire. And that's the story. But they decided they wanted to stretch it into four books. And so Stephanie was forced to come up with some sort of a situation that could make the journey from high school to marriage take four books instead of two. And so the character of Jacob was created out of a character that had been a very small part of the first book. He basically had only existed as Billy Black's son, Billy Black being Charlie Swan's best friend. And she had to take this character who had very lightly gestured toward having a crush on Bella, but no more than any of the other humans in the series. And he was taken, and this werewolf storyline was created, and this love triangle was created. He exists basically as plot armor to make the story continue. I would argue also that Jacob being a contender for Bella's heart or, you know, this construction of a love triangle might not even have needed to have been created 
Jacob Jacob as a character is someone that influences Bella's decisions, sure. But as a love interest, I don't think he actually needed to be that character in the story if you compare this kind of story to maybe Divergent, where Triss and Four, basically Triss and Four for the entire four books. Um but there the outside influence isn't necessarily a love triangle, but rather this influence of like the the looming, you know, eugenics war basically that's happening in Divergent. I think that that same logic could have also been applied to Twilight, where the alpha because the the books and and you know the series itself has so much substance outside of this romantic plot, but then the romantic plot becomes the focal point in the marketing, and in the storytelling for the movies, when the real meat when the real meat of the story is in this, you know, in these vampire politics, in Edward and Bella's reluctance to let go of each other, but also Edward's fear and Edward's care for Bella. With the character of Jacob, they're also, by making him this sort of figure to be pitted against Edward, she also had to rise him to a supernatural level against Edward, because putting a human boy against Edward Cullen, they are going to lose every time. I don't care who you are, they lose every time. So, Stephanie made him a werewolf. Now, there has been a lot of discussion about the politics of this decision and the fact that the Quilliet tribe, who Jacob Black is as a character a member of, they were not approached before the publishing of the book, and Stephanie essentially did some light googling on the series and the tribe, and then created her own alternate mythos based on their creation myths that is no actual root in the facts of their people, other than the fact that they do live on the push. But the movies and the character of Jacob Black take that problem so much further. Jacob Black is 16 in New Moon. He is a child, and he is extremely, extremely sexualized, And the tribe themselves are extremely, extremely sexualized. In the book, this isn't quite as glaring. There are still very much problems with the Quileate representation in the book. But in the movies, the way that they are essentially pitted against the Cullens from New Moon on in the series is you have the very angry, sexual nature wolves against the very civilized, elegant Cullens. That comes to a head in the appropriation of tribal symbols and the creation of a tattoo for the tribe, which does not actually exist. That comes to a head with the fact that they did not receive any compensation whatsoever for the use of their name, their symbols, their land in the films. And that comes to a head in the fact that Taylor Lautner, who was cast as Jacob Black in the first film and then continued on with the series, is not Native American. Now, there are people who portray the wolves in the films that are Native American. In particular, Leah Clearwater is played by a Native woman. However, Summit Films knew that this was a Native character, and they did fairly well with it in the first film. The Quileute on La Push, in the scenes at La Push, in the scenes with Jacob Black in the first film, are treated like normal, everyday people. They're wearing hoodies and rain boots like every other human. 
and are treated with the same sort of care that Bella's human friends are. But that goes out the window the second you get a straight white male director in the room, and it doesn't get replicated or sort of saved at all for the rest of the series, and it only sort of increases. And I think that that's something that really, really has to be hit upon when we're talking about New Moon, because the way that Jacob's character shifts so sharply after he first transforms, he goes from being a sort of like sweet, almost puppy-like younger brother figure for Bella, where they're just, they become very good close friends, to he becomes the sexual aggressor and the physical aggressor in the relationship, both with her and with every other character he interacts with from that point on. While we're on that, you know, in the first movie with the, you know, the final scene where Edward and Bella go to, what is it, the homecoming dance, I think? I don't I don't. In the first film, yes, the prom. Yeah, basically the prom. You know, there's this moment where Jacob approaches Bella and is basically like, oh, you're going with him. The source of that conflict is not because Jacob's vying for Bella's heart. Nope. Maybe it's somewhat influenced by his, like, teeny tiny crush on her that we've established probably exists in the first, you know, first part of our story. But the conflict between them is because of their long-standing feud, because of the feud between the werewolves and the vampires. The conflict in the first movie between the tribe and the Cullens, it's much more a conflict between Billy Black and Carlisle Cullen than it is Jacob Black and Edward Cullen. Right, it's just, it's really just a blood feud that has been carried on by the yes. younger people of the tribe. and the They don't really are... get into it in the movie, but in the book, the only reason Jacob even shows up at the prom in the first place is Billy basically bribes him to go and pass on a message for him. Jacob's not there willingly, he's just like, my dad said he'd buy me a part for my car, if I tell you this, let me tell you this, and then I'll leave. But let's, let's, let's start, let's get into Eclipse now that we've, you know talked about how oh okay wait okay wait i have one sorry i have one more thought on new moon new moon as a book is incredibly rife with discussions of mental health new moon the movie is not (laughs) new moon the movie is not at all about chronic depression and problems with self-esteem and self-actualization new moon the movie is about how many sort of equivalent of chase scenes that can fit into a movie be it the motorcycle crash her getting on and these are all moments that happen in the book but they are presented entirely differently the moment when she goes and approaches the men that resemble the men who almost assaulted her in the first book why is it filmed the way that it is filmed the moment when she crashes and cuts her head open while learning how to ride a motorcycle presented entirely differently And the moment when Bella saves Edward at the Volturi and the entire scene, which is the standoff between Edward and Alice Cullen against the Volturi, are so incredibly different. In the books, the Volturi are presented as sort of like this ancient society, Illuminati style, that, for lack of a better term, controls the vampire community. They serve as judge, jury, and executioner for rules that they themselves have created to protect the vampire populace. In the movies, they're basically wizard cops, where they just sort of appear when you need a vague villain. They don't get into the history of them whatsoever. 
And pretty much the only... The Volturi could have had their own spin-off movie of Fascination. Honestly, they should have. They were such a huge part of the vampire mythos within the Twilight series. And you <sighs> and barely, so get fascinating. Glim- you barely get glimpses of them. They're a huge part of New Moon, and you barely get glimpses of them. You only yeah, see you them barely the get anything in the movie. But they are a huge, huge part of the book. And basically what you get in the movie is you get Robert Pattinson body slammed into marble and Michael Sheen having way too much fun with character laughs is that's essentially what you're getting and also just Dakota Fanning being Dakota Fanning which is always good Mm -hmm. the casting for the Volturi I actually think was absolutely on par I don't know if Catherine was involved in that before she got ousted but Michael Sheen as R.O. chef's kiss he gets the unhinged so well, and I truly think he saves that entire plot line. Because as you go forward in the movies, the Volturi is supposed to be this, like, looming threat over Bella and Edward for the rest of the series. But when you get into Eclipse, you are barely even thinking about them in the movies. In Eclipse, okay, Eclipse is my favorite of the books, I adore it as a book. As a movie, it makes me want to rip my own eyeballs out. Oh, I agree. And a big part of that is the pacing and the fact that at this point, Chris White's had been taken out of the films, and this is David Slade. They're again trying out a different white male director. And David Slade decided, you know what I'm going to do to fix Twilight? Instead of letting the best book in the series be the best movie, I'm going to try and fix it. And I'm going to make Twilight an action movie, which makes zero fucking sense. And it the pacing is so infuriating. Granted, How it, do Eclipse, we go? Granted, Eclipse is a bit of an action sequence, but it, that's not the entirety of the story. Yes, he needed to have an action sequence during the newborn battle, but there is no reason for it to be cut so sharp cut-wise for everything leading up to that. He invents scenes that never existed in the books and that serve no, like, purpose to the arc. He completely guts a lot of characters of their actual sort of purpose in the saga. And he, he's so fixated not on what the series started out as. The series started as a romance. By the time you get to the Eclipse film, it doesn't really feel like a romance. The way that things are cut with the love triangle, the way that scenes are cut with Bella and Edward, the romance scenes are so awkwardly shot and put together that by the end of the film, me, someone who has been fascinated by the love story of Edward Cullen and Bella Swan, could care less. Oh, because let's get into this, by the way. Yes. Because that, that reminds me of something that really, truly pisses me off. Um, like I said, I, I have read Eclipse, I have watched all of the films, like I said, I don't identify with them as closely as Maggie does, but, oh god, Eclipse, in the book, this is the closest point between Edward and Bella before they get married, before Breaking Dawn and Breaking Dawn 2 happen. This is supposed to be the moment that you decide that, yes, this is the couple that should exist for all of eternity. Exactly. They are the closest that they've ever been. Edward has just, you know, survived his suicide attempt. Bella's mourned and gotten the person that she loves back. They've both come come over to the fact where 
Edward has these boundaries in terms of turning her into a vampire, in terms of, you know, they, 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 they've come to an agreement about the nature of their relationship, how they want it to progress, how they want it to be paced. They're on the same page in Eclipse, finally. That is when they're on the same page. In the books, any interaction with Jacob is not because Bella loves him. It's because she's trying to appease him and make sure that he's on their side. Yep. Because she knows that this small group of vampires in the Cullen clan is not going to be able to face off against the newborns by themselves. And even within that, that. she's more concerned for the wolves as friends and as family than, oh my god, Jacob might get hurt. Exactly. Yes, she's upset when he gets hurt, but it's not out of romance. It's because she actually cares about the other people and she says, I don't want to put somebody's life on the line if they don't actually want to be here. Right? She knows that this is a battle. And she knows that she has to do what she can to appease Jacob in order for him to stick with this battle and defend her. And granted, you know, he might do that just because he cares about her in any case. But a lot of what you see in the book is Jacob's pride getting in his own way. Jacob's mm-hmm. pride getting in, his, in the way of his relationship with Bella and actually turning Bella off from him as a friend. And the way that, like, I want to talk about that kiss scene between Jacob and yes, Bella yes, in yes. Eclipse. Because Which one? Are we talking about the first assault or the second assault? Let's talk about both, but I'm talking about okay. the second one where, you know, she kisses him after he's after Edward's basically, like, carried her up the mountain and has her in this tent. Yes. Right before that happens, where she, like, basically turns to Jacob. Edward knows what's going to happen. And, okay, and if you're not familiar with Twilight, if you are, you know that Ella Edward can't read Bella's mind, but because they're on the same page, he knows exactly why she's doing what she's doing in the books. Yes, he's not upset at her at all. Because he knows exactly what she's doing. He knows that she's trying to appease him. Again, it's very, very iffy on the laws of consent. Eh. But you understand why she's doing what she's doing, and it makes you all the more pissed off at Jacob. (laughs) In the movies, everybody construes that scene to be, oh, Bella actually loves Jacob, and she's betraying Edward. But even in Eclipse the movie, you see... On Robert Pattinson's face, he's communicating this very effectively, saying, I understand why you're doing what you're doing. It hurts me, but I understand why you're doing what you're doing. And I know that you're doing this because you have no other option. Speaking of Robert Pattinson, I just want to say something in regards to Kristen Stewart and Robert Pattinson. They got so much shit during this series, and 95% of it is not deserved. They understood their characters, and they did their best with the pile they were given. Because what they signed on with that first film with Catherine Hardwick is not what they were doing for the next four films, but they toughed it out and they made the best of a bad situation. I want to talk now about the first time that Bella and Jacob kissed. So I will never forgive this movie for the way that it presents Bella's assaults as romantic. In the books, it is made extraordinarily clear how unwanted these invasions of Bella are to her. Especially the first kiss, when she goes after he forcefully kisses her, in the book, he is pinning her against him. She cannot resist as hard as she tries to push away, and he forcefully kisses her. He then, er, he then releases her, thinking it's been a romantic moment, and she clocks him, and she breaks her hand. Now, in the book, the way that that moment is played is entirely different than the way that the scene is played in the movie, especially once they get back to Bella's house. Bella, in the book, is just about ready to walk herself 
back to Forks to get away from Jacob, and Jacob insists on driving her. She then calls Edward, who calmly comes, collects her, makes sure she's okay, and that she is safe, and then he very calmly tells Jacob that if he touches her without consent again, bad things will happen. In the movies, Bella acts like nothing has really happened after the punch. They go home, she's being sort of a little testy, but not nearly as traumatized as she actually is. She calls Edward, and then it turns into a spitting contest between Edward and Jacob. The scene goes from being about how Jacob violated Bella's consent and Edward reaffirmed it, to Edward is upset that Jacob infringed on, like, his position in Bella's life. It turns into two men yelling and a woman trying to separate them, rather than one man trying to protect a woman from another man's attack. I think uh, this ties into what you were talking about earlier in terms of how the werewolves are positioned, especially considering they are supposed to be Native American characters, compared to, you know, the white, pale vampires. I think that's also, this is also an interesting part that kind of makes its way into, you know, into that, into that discussion. Because in the books, this Native character, this Indigenous character is kind of being regarded as savage, as violating someone's consent, as being... I, I don't want to say sexually promiscuous, but basically, like, you know... He's aggressive. Yeah, uninhibited, aggressive, which is something that, if we talk about the eugenics movement, if we talk about the greater history of how people of color are portrayed in stories and portrayed as people in advertisements and stuff like that, read, uh, um, I believe it's called Soft Soaping Empire. It's by Anne McClintock. It's about how um, ads for pawns basically were positioned about uh, civilizing the savage, and the savage, of course, is characterized as this African person that's very dark-skinned, with, and the way they depict it on, on these ads is a very, like, minstrel, aggrandized illustration of... <laughs> it's a very offensive illustration, right? It's, it's aggrandized. Yes. It's a minstrel illustration, right? But that kind of compares to, like, how aggressive Jacob is in this particular part of the story in his violation of her consent. And the way they mishandle that in the movie is so painful because it's like, this at this part of the story, the meat of the story is in Victoria's heartbreak. Yes. The meat of the story is in this conflict, in, in, in the alliance between the werewolves and the va- vampires where they pause this blood feud for a hot minute, where Edward and Bella are finally on the same page and they understand why everybody's doing what they're doing. And the main goal is protect Bella because that is who Victoria is after. Because her involvement with the Collins is what got her the person who she loves killed. Right? Yes. And instead, the movies make it about this, you know, whose horse is bigger than my horse competition between Jacob and Edward. When that's not the story. Nope. <laughs> It, and it, it is so incredibly, especially when you look at the way that this movie, compare how this scene goes down versus how it would have gone down in the first film and how far it's gone. Because whereas the first film is essentially a female gaze fantasy about what a relationship could be, by the time we've hit Eclipse, 
we're back to the standard Hollywood trope of a woman being sort of pulled between two men in a game of -of tug-of-war. And she's not a person, she's something to be won. And on top of that, I want to ask, because I don't remember Eclipse too well, but, like, the movie too well. Yeah. After that first uh, assault, after that first time that Jacob basically, like, puts one on Bella, does she, does it, do they portray her as, like, hiding it from Edward in some way? No, she immediately calls Edward and says she needs help with her hand. Okay. But she doesn't but tell But they, they the completely hide any of the actual trauma responses she has in the books. She needs time to process what happened in the books and figure out what's happened to her. None of that happens in the movie. Does she tell him about the kiss in the movie as compared to, like, the book? Does she tell him about the kiss in the book? In the Yeah, she immediately calls him the second she's home at Charlie's and says, I need you to come get me. Jacob kissed me. I broke my hand. I need help. And then, in the and f- Edward's response is entirely tailored to helping her in the book. And then in the films, she doesn't tell him about the kiss at all. But he does he find out? From he does find out. It, it's complicated how he finds out. It's an it's an example of poor filmmaking, frankly. Of we don't know if Bella is the one who directly told him, or if he just sort of pulled it out of Jacob's mind. He just pulls up on the house furious. <laughs> right, because I think that also speaks to this greater like conception of women <laughs> because oh my god like it the way i'm thinking about it is they portray bella as this you know again yeah as you say like this woman is pulled between two two men where that that triangle barely exists in the book there's like a there's, like, a, a grain of it in the books, but... Yeah, it's like, the triangle exists, but one side of the triangle is a whole hell of a lot stronger than the other side. Right. Like, it's it's more it's more of, like, an angle rather than a triangle. It's not connected in terms of, like, yeah. each person's in love with someone else. Because in the books, even when she realizes she does have some love for Jacob, she immediately starts crying because she knows that that will never be enough against Edward. Right. She, she, she finally finds that the that little grain the that he'd been searching for. And she immediately mourns that relationship because she knows that even if she left Edward for Jacob right now, she would never be happy. Mm-hmm. And again, like I said, like like we've been talking about, they're on the same page finally in this third book. Edward and Bella, they're on the same page. They found their rhythm. And in Eclipse, in the book, the thing that threatens that, in fact, nothing really threatens that apart from, you know, Bella's looming, you know, fear of death, but... <laughs> in the movies there's this constant questioning there's this constant belief that Bella just can't decide that she's stuck in between these two people and that she's hurting one person by um you know not choosing them <laughs> in the books Bella never questions her transformation she never ever does she never, never questions her relationship with Edward it is a he- Edward 100% from beginning to end and while yes. she might have some room in her heart for Jacob it is nothing compared to how much she loves Edward. There's a reason why it's called Eclipse. She has the metaphor that her love for Jacob is completely eclipsed by her love for Edward. And I think it also, in talking about Bella and Edward's relationship in the third movie, you don't see any of the recovery they had to go through after New Moon. New Moon is a serious, serious period for the relationship that they have to recover from. It's also a huge And they don't address event. it at all. Yeah, it's a huge Yeah, they don't address event. it at all. You, and, like, we talked a bit. The proposal 
scene in it the... It was mishandled. I did it's not... It's so... Ugh. It was too early. Because he it proposes was... an eclipse, correct? So, okay, here is how it goes in the books. And then we will compare that to the movies. So what happens in the books is they get back at the end of New Moon from the Volturi. Bella convinces Carlisle to transform her after she graduates high school. But she wants Edward to do it. And Edward says, I don't want to, but if you really, really want me to, I will do it, but only once we are already married. Because to him, it is important that they are joined in every human way before she joins him in a vampiric way. In the movies, he uses it as this weird bartering chip in regards to a conversation they have with Jacob. And then the whole proposal scene in the books, it's fairly romantic, Bella has very complicated relationships with marriage and children and with traditionally feminine archetypes in general in both the movies and the books. But there are very clear moments in the proposal scene in the books where she clearly wants to get married. She's more worried about what other people are going to think rather than being married to Edward. In the movies... She's basically just forced to sit there in silence for the majority of the scene, and then suddenly there's a ring on her finger, and it's okay! They take all- what could have been an incredibly powerful scene of sort of the climax of their relationship while she's human- falls completely flat, and that is not on the performers, that is on the writing and on the way it is filmed. Yeah, I I think I've seen that scene in Eclipse where he proposes to her, and it angers me so much because the way it's depicted in the books, it is this very dramatic, very important scene that's a turning point in their relationship. But it's kind of, it's a throwaway line in New Moon, right at the end. Mm-hmm. And then in Eclipse, it's not treated with that same kind of respect and dramatic intent that it is in in the books it's this huge moment and once again bella and edward are on the same page they're at the same rhythm finally there is no doubt that bella's gonna say yes but in the movie she seems so uneasy and so fearful fearful and and you know anxious and then the way i I don't know if this was like robert pattinson's direction or if this was like you know just the way he portrayed the, you know, portrayed the character, but it falls flat. It does. It it, do, it doesn't have the emotional weight that it should. And the fact that we immediately in the movie go from that scene to the scene where she's in a sleeping bag with Jacob. The, the movie, it, it's just, it's bad. The the only parts of Eclipse that I occasionally rewatch is I rewatch Rosalie's backstory and I rewatch Jasper's backstory and the majority of that is just because Jackson Rathbone and Nikki Reed are very, very pretty. And truly, I think Summit did not care about the supporting characters. And so those moments feel the most like what Catherine started. Because I don't think producers were meddling with those moments as much as they were meddling with Edward and Bella. Yeah, and while we're at it, while we're talking about the tent scene, uh, in the films... There is this line where basically Edward is like, can you at least, you know, think about something else? So, like, while Jacob is holding the love of his life in his arms, 
while Edward watches on because he can't do anything. He's ice cold. He can't warm her up, so he has to, you know, hand her off to he the He has person, to have Jacob do this. Right, because he wants to keep her alive. Yeah. <sighs> and then Jacob, it's suggested in the films that Jacob is basically thinking these really lewd thoughts about Bella. Mm-hmm. That in and of itself is very predatory and gross, especially considering Bella's only doing this to stay alive. <laughs> yes, and there's an entire scene in the books where Bella's fallen like asleep, but she's in that moment right before you're really asleep where you're kind of aware of the outside world, but you're very hazy, where she overhears Jacob and Edward having this conversation about their lives and their communities and their care for Bella, and they sort of reach an understanding. And that does not exist whatsoever in the movies. Right. Instead, Jacob basically says, like... Like, like Edward ha- makes this comment. He's like, I think if it wasn't, you know, the whole politics between werewolves and vampires, I think you and I would actually be good friends. And yep. he says, no, I don't think we would. Which is... Uh, God. Huh, dialogue alone. <laughs> but, so, after Eclipse... What is Summit Entertainment to do? There's only one book left, but if they stop making the movies, they lose their cash cow. Oh, I've got an idea. Do what Harry Potter did and make the second movie two movies. Not the second movie, the final movie two movies. And both of these ended up being directed by Bill Condon. So if you're keeping track, that means that there is a different director for each story of the saga. Bill Condon does both of the Breaking Dawn films, but it is a different person for Eclipse, a different person for New Moon, a different person for Twilight. The Breaking Dawn films, in my opinion, actually suffer from the opposite problem that the Twilight films did when Twilight, not from the Harry Potter films, when Harry Potter was split into two for Deathly Hallows. Because they sort of had to fill moments in Deathly Hallows to make it two movies. Frankly, Breaking Dawn could have been its own HBO miniseries. There is so much that's happening. As a book, it is extremely controversial amongst fans to this day. The book has its problems. And it messes with certain points of the canon up to that point. The movie takes these problems and explodes them and makes that the entire movie, basically. I think, okay, I'm going to say this. I think that splitting Breaking Dawn into two parts actually might have been a smart move. Considering I do, there but... are these two, like, stories. There's a first part where Bella and Edward get married. They deal with, you know, their town basically side-eyeing them. And then they spend this time being happy on their honeymoon, and then it gets to Bella's pregnancy, which in and of itself is a very long, laborious, and traumatic event for her. It's about 300 pages, yeah. Right? And then the second part is her new life as a vampire, and once again having to deal with vampire politics with the Volturi, uh, which really should have been a much bigger part in the movies. Exactly. That That's what I, I went... When I say that I'm upset with making it the two films, I think it makes much more spent sense to break up Breaking Dawn than break up Deathly Hallows. But because especially when I think about with how fast-paced and janky Eclipse was, I can't even imagine how messy Breaking Dawn would have been if they tried to do that to that too. Mm-hmm. But I think about the way that 
Breaking Dawn Part 2 was handled in comparison to Breaking Dawn Part 1. I think Breaking Dawn Part 1 actually handled a lot of things fairly well. I think the wedding was handled pretty well, although I am still bitter we didn't get the garter scene, just because that is a moment in the books that makes me very happy. I think they handled the honeymoon very well. The pregnancy, they tried. I honestly do not think that the technology was there for them to do what had to happen. Stephanie Meyer has talked about how she has no plans on licensing it for movies ever again, but if a company ever approaches her to do like an animated series, she'd be interested in that. Mm-hmm. And I think that would actually work fairly well. But Breaking Dawn Part 2, in my mind, is when it stops being a part like Breaking Dawn Part 2 I feel like is a part of a different movie series than the three movies before it and Twilight is a part of a different movie series than the rest of them it feels like it's removed from the rest and there are parts in Breaking Dawn Part 2 that I greatly enjoy I really like the way that they handled all of the foreign covens in particular Casting Rami Malek as Benjamin was a stroke of genius, and he was very good at that character. Lee Pace as Garrett was wonderful. But I will never be over what they did with the final battle scene. And it makes my blood pressure rise just talking about it now. If you're not familiar, in Breaking Dawn Part 2, the big climax of the film is when the Volturi come to investigate Renesme. Edward and Bella's vampire daughter. We're not going to get into how complicated Renesmee's existence is, (laughs) but she exists, and the Volturi are there to investigate it because turning a vampire that young is considered illegal. In the books, the Cullens win through a show of emotional strength. There's no fight. There's no battle. It is a battle of wills and morals, if anything. It is a show of strength. In the movies, it turns into a scene out of Mad Max where they show everyone's favorite characters from over the years being slaughtered by the Volturi only to then retcon it and say, oh no, Alice was just having a vision. None of that actually happened. I remember sitting in a movie theater when the final film came out. I was with my other Twilight friends And from the moment that Aro held up Carlisle's severed head on, we were all fighting to not walk out of the movie theater. Because it was so far from what this series really was about. And yes, they needed a climax to the series, but it is incredibly male gaze to say, okay, we need a climax. What should the climax be? Oh, how about a bunch of bloodshed and brutality and nothing related to empathy and emotion, which is what the series is actually about? Yeah, I think that's a great point. If I remember correctly, the whole, fi- like the whole final battle scene in Breaking Dawn, in the in the novel itself, it's really a show of how strong Bella is now that she's a vampire. Yeah, it's showing that she really is where she belongs. How protective she can be, how she's working with everybody around her. I think even Garrett's, like, a big part of that, who's, like, her new vampire best friend or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, they're protecting people at the same time. They're, like, how she's able to protect everybody that she's with, all of these people that she's surrounded by. Granted, I will say, in the movie, 
that twist where this entire battle scene is actually in Alice's mind and nobody's actually dead, I think is a very effective dramatic twist, but I do agree with what you say where the battle scene was centered around Bella's empathy and Bella's strength and her finally being in the place. As we said about like the beginning of the series in like Twilight, how Bella is very uncomfortable with being a human in Breaking Dawn Part 2 in the film, at least for the first part of it, you see how comfortable she is being a vampire, how excited Mm -hmm. she is to be a vampire. How this finally feels like it's her place. It feels like she feels confident. She's settled. She's, and I think that's also a testament to Kristen Stewart's acting chops in how Mm -hmm. she's, you know, relatively uncomfortable for the entire series. And then as as we get into Breaking Dawn's part one and two. Everyone who's like, Bella's so like awkward and so like, quirky girl and like that is the entire point <laughs> she is that's congrats you did not pass reading comprehension she's 17 years old and she's in love with this person that she's seen like for the first time in her life she's oh, of course she's gonna be awkward hasn't anyone ever been 17 oh my literally. god literally <laughs> <laughs> jeez but, but in like but, yeah break in breaking dawn parts one and two you see bella comfortable in her place excited a hundred percent invested. And in the books, that final battle scene is her in her place, showing her strength, finally who she's wanted to be this whole time, happy with it, confident. But you get like none of that. No, you get none of that in the movie. Yeah, her depicted think... as a as a loving mother. You get her depicted as protective, as angry and aggressive, but not necessarily this part where she's super, super protective of her family and 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 loving and caring of everyone around her in the same way that she was loving and caring of the wolves in Eclipse, but you don't see that in Eclipse either. It's about nope. her and and this you know relationship. And in terms of Bella and the way that her femininity is expressed in the books versus the movies, I personally think the battle in Breaking Dawn the book is a really incredible mirror to the standoff scene against the nomads in Twilight. They're in the same place, they're in the same clearing, and instead of Bella being the one who's weak and in need of protecting and sort of the one in distress, in Breaking Dawn, she is the protector, she is the one in power, she is the one in control. And it's basically the bookends of Bella's four-book-long arc to becoming an actualized, self-sufficient, strong woman. There is none of that in the movies. And I think we're going to get into sort of the Twilight fandom, but I think it sends a very different message to the girls that are engaging with this series, depending on if you're engaging with book Bella or movie Bella. Right, because movie Bella's depicted as, like, this... She's not hypersexualized, I don't believe that. But, you know, Jacob is hypersexualized. So is yeah. um, so is Edward, to an extent. But Bella is portrayed as this indecisive, uh, hormonal... I, I, I don't know how to describe it, but basically, in the books, Bella's discomfort comes from her wanting agency and when she is granted agency when she isn't pulled along that's when she feels most like herself as any person does 
when they are put in a position where they actually have control. And that is a lot of the basis of her relationship with Edward is not only because she loves him, because she loves what he stands for and, you know, has been in love with him since the moment she first saw him. But there's also this part where he, I think he, he very constantly like makes sure that she's consenting. He makes sure that she's, she is an agent of her own destiny, that she, that, while he, he, you know, you know, sets his own boundaries, but he grants her a lot of agency in the book that is taken away from her by other characters. In the films, she's kind of a, a patsy to everybody else's whims. Absolutely. She's dragged along by Alice. She's dragged along by Jacob. Sometimes by Edward, which I think is a very gross mishandling. And mm-hmm. even towards the end of the series, when you get into like Breaking Dawn Part 2, she's portrayed as this aggressive, uncontrolled, angry character. When at this point, she's at her strongest. And at this point, any of her anger and aggression comes from one, being a newborn, and two, being protective of her family. Yes. But it's kind of seen as like, oh, she's this aggressive, crazy person. And even at 18, even married and with a child, by Breaking Dawn Part 2, she's still kind of seen as this immature, uncontrolled, uncivilized person. Which I think is very, very, it's a gross mishandling. Especially when you think about how, how, as we're talking about the male and female gaze, like, what are young women, what are young girls thinking about when they're seeing the rest of these movies do they think that relationships are and granted like as we as we've discussed earlier in this podcast you know the suspension of disbelief real relationships aren't like this at all um sometimes they are sometimes they're not but Mm -hmm. most real relationships are influenced by other things than you know just oh this person's cute oh i'm in love with them but as you said i'm thinking about the kids at 12, 13, and 14 who don't know about the real world yet, whose conception of the real world comes from films, whose conception of relationships comes from films and and novels, and how representing those things in particular ways actually influences how they think about themselves, how they think about other people, how they think about women in general. Mm Mm-hmm. And when Bella is portrayed as this hormonal, indecisive, crazy, aggressive person... What is it reinforcing? Right. When she... When these moments of strength are cut out for moments of, you know, dramatic tension, what is that... What is that showing? I also think it's really important to talk about the way that people engaged with the series and how it was really strongly policed. People's reaction to this series were very heavily policed, And a big part of that is the fact that Twilight, as a book series and on the surface as a movie series, was marketed and made for teenage girls. And in our patriarchal society, the opinions of teenage girls are pretty close to the bottom of the totem pole in terms of respect. When something is made for a teenage boy, it is automatically given more credence than something that is made for a teenage girl. It's incredibly frustrating. It's an incredibly complex problem. But I think about the way that teenage fans of Twilight were treated and how they were treated as if their opinions and their enjoyment of the series somehow made them inherently less than 
in the eyes of society. Okay, and I think that's where we're going to end part one. The rest of this discussion will be in part two, which is coming next week. So please stay tuned for that. Thank you for listening to Let's Muse About with Krupa Malawade. I'll see you next week.